Hi everyone, Happy New Year and welcome to Life Changing Conversations. We are now ready to officially launch and the launch of Life Changing Conversations is being coincided with Veganuary. Veganuary is a charity inspiring people to try going vegan for January and throughout the rest of the year. It was co-founded by uh, a, a wonderful individual called Matthew Glover and I will be getting him onto the podcast in the very near future. But our podcast series to support Veganuary starts with Dr. Michael Greger. Dr. Michael Greger is the founder of NutritionFacts.org and he's also the author of How Not to Die and just newly released the How Not to Die cookbook. He's an absolutely fantastic doctor, physician, and New York Times best-selling author, internationally recognized uh, for his area of expertise. And it was a great pleasure and an honor to be able to have some time to talk to him. His NutritionFacts.org website is looking at all the studies and all the research ever carried out on nutrition so we don't have to, uh, who it's funded by, and he puts all of these findings into the website for free. There's no adverts, and it's just about ensuring that you get the facts and the information you need to make positive nutritional choices. He's an extremely busy man, so it was great that he had the time to catch up with us. He did so on his treadmill as he was doing his morning walk. I really enjoyed talking to him. It was a really fascinating discussion and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed um, having the conversation with him. Firstly, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on Life Changing Conversations podcast. This is all about understanding incredible people that are doing amazing work and what was the story that led them to do what they do now. And, you know, I want to start with What's your story? What led you to turning to a plant-based diet, to a vegan lifestyle? Because my understanding is it's, it's not always been this way. You didn't start out as a vegan advocate. No, no, it was all, uh, it all actually goes back to my grandmother. Okay. Um, you know, I think the, uh, the spark for many kids to want to become a doctor when they grow up is watching a, a grandparent get sick or even die. But for me, it was watching my grandma get better. Uh -huh. um, uh, I was just a kid when uh, the doctor sent my grandma home in a wheelchair to die. She had end-stage wow. heart disease, already had so many bypass surgeries, basically nothing else you could do, uh, confined in a wheelchair, crushing chest pain. Her life was over at age 65. But then she uh, heard about this guy, Nathan Pritikin, one of our early lifestyle medicine pioneers. And what happened next is actually detailed in Pritikin's biography. My, my grandma was one of the death's door people. They wheeled her in, and she walked out. Within a few weeks, she was walking 10 miles a day. Uh, thanks to, she was given her medical death sentence at age 65. Thanks to a healthy diet, was able to enjoy another 31 years on this planet until age 96 to enjoy her six grandkids, including me. That's why I went to medicine. So, so hold on, That's let me let me stop you there. So you're talking about going within a space of a few weeks from death's door to walking 10 miles a day. That's what a plant-based diet and lifestyle can do. Although back then I didn't realize how revolutionary that was. I mean, back then we didn't even know that heart disease was reversible at all. But mm. I mean, as a kid, you know, I, I just got to play with grandma again. Like it was just like, oh yeah, she went to the, you know, she went to get better and they fix you up and then you're better. Like, I mean, to me it was nothing, you know, only later. Mm did I realize what really profound implications this should have on uh, mainstream medicine. Yeah, and I, I think this is a fascinating point because I, I've been vegan for, for almost five years now. 
But I need to understand the science of everything I do. I don't do things because it works. I want to understand why it works. I was the kid that took the television to bits to find out where the picture came from. And this is one of the reasons I'm really interested in talking to you because I want to be able to, to, to engage people in conversations and debate and be able to back it up with facts. And one of the challenges is there's so much pseudoscience out there on all sides of the fence, whether that's coming from the medical system, the pharma system, the food industry, or even from the plant-based side of things where the people are just chucking out information with no way to be able to back it up. And as I said, like that for me is one of the big things that, that I really want to explore with you today is, is the true science behind this. Yeah, I mean, you can say that again, definitely. And it's the, and I think you you really nailed the perfect term, pseudoscience. And that's why I've spent my entire life, dedicated my life, to you know trans, translating this mountain of evidence that already exists into um, something people can understand. And don't just refer to the science or cite the science, but actually show the science, show the actual papers, the actual primary peer-reviewed medical literature, not only have links to all the full-text articles, but actually show it, like, here's the graph, here's the, here's the chart right in front of you, here's the data, make up your own mind. Hmm. And I think a big part of this is the difference between good science and bad science as well, because there are so many studies I've seen. In, in, in fact, like our organization, I run an organization called the Stress Management Society. We do a lot of research around stress and mental health. And we've seen a lot of studies um, that, that have been skewed to show whatever it is the person that's funded the study wants to show. This is actually studies that we have conducted, that the reports have been delivered, and they've taken a small element of that and used that for their marketing purposes and ignored all the rest of it. So that, that's the other key thing for me is understanding the difference between good science and bad science and what is the PR piece that is uh, you know, issued in the press release and what is actually that study truly showing. So yeah, that's a whole nother layer. So first of all, I mean, the, the I, mean, I think the biggest problem is the translation. Like, you know, I mean, what what actually you see in media or what's passed around uh, um, in uh, kind of the, you know, person to person, it actually doesn't reflect at all um, or just a tiny piece of what the actual original study said. Many journalists probably don't even read the original study. Maybe they just read a press release that was released about the study. But then there's that additional layer, which you point out, is, well, maybe they actually accurately are representing what the study found. But the study was designed in such a way yeah. mm -hmm. to get the conclusions that would be you know, friendly to the financial sponsors of the study. So that's why it's always important. First thing I do when I look at a study is, you know, qui bono, who profits, what, you know, who sponsored the study, who funded the study. I look at the conflicts of interest statement, and then it doesn't mean it's a bad study. I mean, you know, but you just want to look at it with a particularly critical eye if indeed it was studied. Um, but, you know, something was studied that has some kind of commercial conflicts of interest. No, absolutely. And if, you know, part of it is the studies, but part of the information that's put out, like, for example, in Britain, we have government guidelines around eating five bits of fruits or vegetable a day or drinking eight glasses of water a day. Now, I have tracked back to get to the source of that information. And this is what people commonly accept as what is healthy. I've eaten five bananas a day, I've had my five a day. I've drank eight glasses of water a day, except I'm working outdoors, it's summer, I'm 200 pounds, um, you know, I'm, I'm highly active. Eight glasses of water means I'm gonna be chronically dehydrated. So pointing out information like that can be at best confusing, at worst, downright dangerous. 
So this is again why I'm really interested in actually getting people to, to take responsibility of their experience rather than relying on someone else that may or may not have their best interests at heart. I, mean, I think I think guidelines and recommendations are fine as long as they make it very explicit where they're getting it from. Yep. And so they're saying, you know, this eight glasses of water is based on X, Y, and Z. If you're this, um, you know, this activity level, this kind of climate, et cetera, et cetera, this is how we came to this. So then people can tweak it based on their own personal experience. I mean, so yes, fruits and vegetables are fantastic, but if you're on a drug like Coumadin, um, uh, then eating dark and leafy vegetables could be fatal yeah. um, uh, without adjusting your dose. And so, uh, but in general, um, I think guidelines can be very helpful, um, just giving a general sense of the healthiest foods out there and the foods that we really, in general, want to stay away from. Absolutely. So uh, we got a bit sidetracked. I want to go back to your story. So obviously, you know, your, your, your grandma turned around her health and, uh, and restored herself to vitality in the, in the space of a few weeks. But that wasn't what led you to going vegan, was it? No, I mean, I, I mean, it didn't even occur to me that that you know that anything special had happened. Mm. It wasn't really until um, uh, until July twenty third, nineteen ninety, um, when in the Lancet, uh, one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, Dr. Dean Ornish published his lifestyle heart trial, the mm. first randomized controlled study proving something called quantitative angiography, that indeed heart disease could be reversed. Arteries opened up without drugs, without surgery, just a plant-based diet and lifestyle program. So effectively uh, showing that the number one killer of men and women uh, here in the States could be reversed. Um, so the cure to our number one killer yet. And so, you know, after that day, in the summer of 1990, no one else should have died from heart disease. We've got it. We figured it out. But instead, hundreds of thousands of people continue to die from this preventable, arrestable, reversible condition. But that's what did it for me. This science was right there in black and white. I mean, and, and I was just flummoxed why everybody else around me didn't immediately change um, at the same time. So, so why is this not widely available knowledge? Why are doctors and physicians not telling their patients that are suffering from heart disease or poor health to turn to a, a plant-based lifestyle? Well, I mean, things are changing. It's getting better and better, but I think it's just ignorance. I mean, they just don't know. They weren't taught this in medical school. I mean, here in the States, the big pharma, the pharmaceutical industry plays um, a heavy role in both medical education and practice. And I mean, you know, I can ask your, your GP when's the last time they were taken out to dinner by Big Broccoli? It's probably been a while. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, the system is set up to reward pills and procedures, which are profitable for shareholders somewhere, but not necessarily profitable um, for your own or for your family's health. I mean, so, I mean, these plant-based interventions for some of these chronic lifestyle diseases, not just safer and cheaper, but can work better because you're actually treating the underlying cause of the disease. But, you know, we just weren't taught that. I mean, so the science exists. It's just the matter of taking that science and getting it out to the public, uh, informing the medical um, establishment, uh, but not waiting for the doctors to get on board. It took decades before the medical community real, um, was able to kind of digest the data on smoking and lung cancer. Meanwhile, um, thousands of people were dying um, so also important to just take it out to the people. Look, we're talking about safe, simple, side-effect-free solutions, like eat healthier, 
stop smoking. You don't have to wait for your doctor to tell you to do these things. You can uh, take responsibility for your own health. So there's a pretty bold statement you made there. You're comparing an animal product lifestyle to smoking. No, well, not just animal products, but processed foods as well. I mean, okay. the problem with vegan, I mean, the word vegan or vegetarian, I mean, that, as a physician, that just tells me what you don't eat. Right. Yeah. You could, I mean, think of the crisps and chips and soda and all, there's all sorts of vegan. Now there's like vegan donuts and junk food. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about a diet centered around you know whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, mushrooms, herbs and spices. Basically, real food that grows out of the ground. These are our healthiest choices. Mm. I mean, so that's really the diet we're talking about. Um, and look, this is the diet, the only diet ever proven to reverse heart disease in the majority of patients, plant-based diet, right? If that's all a plant-based diet could do, reverse the number one or two killer of men and women, shouldn't that be the default diet to prove otherwise? And the fact that it can also be effective in preventing or arresting and reversing, you know, other uh, leading killers like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure, it seem to make the case for plant-based eating simply overwhelming i think um when people actually look at the science um they'll came to the, they'll come to the same conclusion I, I really appreciate you making that distinction because as veganism becomes more popular there are more, you know, big commercial brands that are launching vegan products. You know, Pizza Hut recently launched a vegan pizza. There's the McVegan in McDonald's. Every supermarket will have an aisle stocked with vegan processed foods. So you can basically be a vegan junk food addict um, as easily as you could be addicted to, you know, animal-based, uh, uh, you know, junk food. And I think that's one of the things that, that, that is, is of concern because you could have people going vegan and still have a very poor lifestyle. Absolutely. Although, I mean, one could argue that these are good kind of transitional foods. I mean, if you're sure. at McDonald's, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I haven't looked at the nutrition profile, but I mean, I'm sure the McVegan is healthier than whatever, you know, the regular burger that they sell. Um, and so for someone kind of starting to make healthier choices, I mean, sure. I think, you know, everyone can't jump to, you know, kale and lentils, um, <laughs> uh, you know, but as a transition food, I think some of these products are, um, can be very helpful, but I just don't want people to stall there, to stop there. I and mean, those are kind yeah. of stepping stones towards a healthier diet, not the end point. So, so Michael, what is your mission? What do you stand for? What is your purpose on this planet today? Um, for me, it's getting this information out there, this life-changing, life-saving information out there. And then it's up to everybody. Look, it's your body, your choice. You want to mm. smoke cigarettes or go bungee jumping, do whatever you want. And that's, you know. Um, but as a physician, all I can do is share with you the best available balance of evidence. Um, so, you know, if you, you know, continue with lifestyle X, Y, and Z, you know, these are the likely consequences of your actions. And then you can make up your own mind. Mm. Um, but I think people underestimate the power that they have. I mean, the good news is we have tremendous power over our health, destiny, and longevity. The vast majority of premature death and disability is preventable hmm. with a plant-based diet um, and other healthy lifestyle behaviors. And so I just want to get this good news out there for those who, uh, you know, want to improve their health. And given the fact that we've already discussed that there are many different sources of information and some of them are tainted because someone somewhere is funding that information, for, and forgive me for being blunt here, why should people trust the information that you're putting out and what makes you impartial as opposed to everybody else that's putting out their own information? Right. 
and so I, I'm so glad you brought that up, right? So this is not like the Dr. Greger diet. I mean, this is, and, and I make that very explicit in all my work. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to, listen to the science. I mean, that's why we have the scientific method. Mm-hmm. So we can differentiate fact from fancy. Okay, these studies have been done. There's this, I mean, we have, you know, uh, nutritional science literature going solidly back at least a half a century. And so, look, the studies have been done. It's just a matter of bringing this information out there. And so, basically, I don't say, you know, you should eat this, you shouldn't eat this. I say, look, here's the data showing that if you randomize people to, okay, you eat an extra, you eat an egg, extra egg a day, you don't eat an extra egg a day, and then let's see what happens in the next two months. You know, and then here's the data. And, and then it's up to people to be like, yeah, well, you know, I like eggs enough that I don't care. Or, wow, I'm never going to eat another egg. I mean, it's totally up to them. It's just important that people make fully informed decisions. And you can't do that if you don't have all the facts. And I've been given a note by my producer to ask you about the Oprah story. So apparently there's a wonderful story you've got about your experience with Oprah and the food, uh, the meat industry. And we'd love to hear about that. Boy, this goes back a while. So Oprah Winfrey, if you remember, she got sued by a Texas cattle Yes, I remember that, yeah. Under these, uh, so 13 uh, 13 states here in the states have uh, what are called food disparagement laws, meaning it is illegal to make um, uh, unfounded comments against perishable food items. And so um, uh, Oprah Winfrey had this guest, this cattle rancher on her show, who said, who just described how you know, they were feeding cows to cows, something that, uh, you know, the UK stopped a lot earlier, but mm. was continuing here in the, in the States. Um, and, I mean, she was just so horrified at the fact of, like, you know, feeding, you know, meat and bone meal, ground up, um, uh, you know, and then feeding it back to, back to the animals, oh. um, uh, that she said, that stopped me cold from eating another burger, right? Um, so she's never going to eat another burger again. Well, the, the you know, cattle futures on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange took a big drop. She's a very popular show. Yeah. And this Texas cattle rancher lost all this money. And so it's like, well, wait a second. I lost all this money. So sued Oprah under these, in Texas, had this food disparagement law saying, you can't say that about beef. And so I was uh, kind of called as uh, to offer testimony as to why... What she said were, were actually founded comments that, you know, that absolutely, that was the practice, um, and it's risky. Um, and, you know, so the, nothing was said on the show that wasn't true. Um, thankfully, she actually won under on First Amendment grounds, saying she should be able to say whatever she wants, regardless, you know. Um, but, uh, but I was kind of just, just brought in to speak specifically to the bovine sponge form encephalopathy angle. And so, but I think the important lesson from the Oprah story, and so uh, people don't realize it took her eight years, I mean, it, took, it was eight years. I mean, it was, she mm-hmm. won, but after appeal, after appeal, she won, 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 um, but it was an eight-year process, and who knows how much money it cost, but um, it just showed that if, um, if the industry can drag one, a billionaire, drag one of the most powerful people in the world, basically, you know, through hell for eight years, who really won? One could argue, no, yeah. it was the industry that won, even though they didn't technically win the case. What it did is it silenced it. It had a freezing effect on free speech. Who else is going to, you know, get on TV and say something bad about, you know, unhealthy food? 
Um, do you have, are you a billionaire? Can you waste millions of dollars in the court system? Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, I mean, it just shows, I think, the power. I mean, of course, how these laws came about is that the industry um, uh, put them in place to have just this kind of effect, to have a silencing effect on the truth. And absolutely, I completely can relate to that in a much smaller way. The, the, the Me being very vocal about the mental health and uh, the ease of access to things like SSRIs and how they are, you know, the science doesn't back up their efficacy, but there are alternative strategies out there that have been proven to be significantly more successful. And the moment you start saying that and the moment you start questioning that, you very quickly start finding you getting letters from big pharma companies asking you to retract your statements. And it's scary because, you know, we live in the free, you know, West, as we're told. But actually, do we really truly have the freedom of speech? Or are, the moment you start saying something that questions the status quo, you very quickly get challenged. And that, that is something that really scares me because... The, the truth isn't really out there, which actually concerns me because people don't have access to the facts to make the right decisions about their health, their well-being and their life in general. Um, well, I'm so glad you're doing that. I actually did a, I was surprised myself looking at the antidepressant data and put a video about it, um, you know, talking about the publication bias, how uh, many of these negative studies were simply kind of shelled. Um, Absolutely. And never published. And when you actually look at that. And so, but, you know, the, so that's a great example of uh, where the science, like if you look at the scientific literature, I mean, the, you know, the, there's this, the, the, these studies saying how great these drugs are. Of course, they're all funded by the, by the drug industry. Um, but only when they actually look at the unpublished work do you realize um, uh, how, what little efficacy these drugs have. And Absolutely. so that's just another layer <laughs> of, even if the, even if the peer reviewed uh, scientific literature says something, you still have to continue to ask questions. And I, I, what I'm really starting to, to get fascinated by is the fact that there are significant large-scale studies that are taking place on alternative strategies. There's the one on psilocybin that's been done in the States and has been replicated in Finland, which proved that it was something like 80% successful at treating uh, antidepressants. In fact, there was an article in New Scientist last month, I don't know if you saw it, it's the, the cover article about the use of psychedelics in, in, in treating depression. And all I'm saying is we're very quick to label things and put things into boxes, the plant-based diet, the vegan lifestyle, alternative healing strategies. And just because it doesn't fit the status quo, it's labeled as wrong or you know dangerous. Whereas actually the things that we are told are good for us you know, are they correct? It's like the whole thing about fat being bad for you. It's only recently I learned that that whole study was funded in the 50s. It cost about $50,000 by the sugar industry to, to, to label fat as bad for you. So this is how easily we can buy science. So that kind of concerns me that, that, that you know, for many years, people were making lifestyle choices based on a phony study. So, I mean, this harkens back, I think, to the smoking situation kind of back in the 50s. Sure. Where smoking, or at least, so here in the States, the average per capita cigarette consumption is 4,000 cigarettes a year, meaning the average person walking around smoked half a pack a day on average, right? Wow. Most doctors smoked. Um, and so, you know, when the American Medical Association was coming out saying smoking in moderation is fine, I mean, all the stuff that you hear today about diet, right? And so by then, we already had decades of science linking lung cancer and smoking. Like the science was there, but because it was normal, because smoking was the status quo, it, it almost didn't matter what the science said because, you know, there was the stranglehold on access to information 
by this very powerful tobacco industry. And once they could control the doctors, they could control you know, the, the, the flow of information. But now, what we're seeing now is this democratization mm. of information, thanks to the internet. People can now, now, you know, there's no, doctors don't have a monopoly on medical information. Now, people can do their own research. Now, of course, there's lots of garbage out on the internet, um, but one hopes that the, you know, kind of the truth will float to the surface and people can actually, uh, you know, build up some critical thinking skills and, uh, and find out this information that previously could be buried by special interests, but now can uh, come out to the surface. And do you feel we could ever get to the point that, that we've got to with smoking today where, you know, most oh, people understand and sure. believe that, 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 that this is not something that's good for your life? Sure. I mean, for so many reasons. I mean, it's just, I mean, we're going to get bankrupt. I mean, the healthcare system is just going to get bankrupt at the yeah. current rates of chronic disease um, in terms of diabetes rates, exploding obesity rates. I mean, we just can't afford um, uh, this, uh, this kind of current treatment model. You know, corporations can't afford to pay health insurance for their employees here in the States. Um, and so, I mean, there are financial pressures that are finally going to just get the whole thing to crumble, um, which will then... Um, uh, you know, allow, uh, you know, more of this information to get out there. And look, there's still, like here in the States, uh, you know, one in five people still smoke. Smoking rate's about 20%. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, it, it's still this tremendous public health victory um, that we dragged smoking rates so low. But look, people are always going to, you know, engage in, you know, risky behaviors unless they're right. But they should do it fully informed. They should understand the risks. Um, and we should protect vulnerable populations. And so I think the same thing's going to happen, where, you know, uh, uh, realization how much power we have over our health and longevity, and the majority of people are going to choose the healthier lifestyle choices. There are people that have quoted science to me that baffles me. One, one of the, the so-called facts that people have quoted to me is human beings only evolved, our brains only developed because of our consumption of animal proteins. And I've seen conflicting information on this. Uh, I, I've read a book recently called Sapiens, which had like various different viewpoints on it. I wanted your take on that. Could we have got here without me? Okay, let's say it's true. Let's let even if you let's say you grant that point. I mean, we don't really know, but fine. What does it matter what we were eating millions of years ago? Um, now we have science, and we can actually put you know diets to the test and actually understand what's the healthiest thing. I mean, back then all that mattered is we need to re live to reproductive age, yeah. um, to pass along your genes. I mean, that's the critical point. And of course, back then it was all about scarcity, um, and so you just need concentrated sources of calories, or you starve to death. So concentrated, of course, it's calorie, your brain and bone marrow, and you know, I mean, you're not, you're not going to get that, you know, chewing on dark green leafy vegetables. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there's an advantage. I mean, you could go back and time machine airdrop some Twinkies, and <laughs> and and whatever um, you know, cave people got the Twinkies would totally destroy every other, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, I mean, they would they would reign supreme because they have a this source of calories. And it doesn't matter if they all drop dead of heart disease, they've already passed along their genes and that's what evolution cares about. Mm. Okay, but now, it's not about living to puberty. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, we're dealing with chronic disease. Some of the leading killers, things like heart disease and cancers and, you know, that, these kind of things, these are diseases of old age. Yeah. Um, and so, 
um, what may, you know, uh, get us to, to survive until puberty may not be the same thing that allows us to thrive um, as we grow older. But look, now we got science. We can put things to the test and find out what is or is not healthy, regardless of what was healthy 200 million years ago. And, and I'm going to just add that these aren't just diseases of old age. For me, they're diseases of lifestyle because we're seeing more and more young people that are suffering, uh, you know, from the kind of illnesses that we only used to see in old age. But there's something else I want to touch on. My, my background expertise is, is stress and mental health. And we're starting to see from some of the studies that we've been involved with um, and that, that, that we have been presented with, the very strong link between poor mental health and uh, and diet. That people are eating processed foods and, and uh, particularly kind of factory farm meats are more likely to have instances of poor mental health, depression, and sadly, and uh, you know, this is not just true in Western Europe, it's true in the States as well. The main cause of death in a man under the age of 45 is suicide. Now, we have to consider diet plays a part in that, and they said that the, the, there is more and more compelling evidence to show that. What are your thoughts on that? We're not just cross-sectional data. I mean, originally we just had this data showing that people eat healthier, feel healthier, have better mental health. But the pro problem has always been, well, wait a second, do um, does you know good food make you uh, you know uh, improve your mental health, or do mentally healthy people just tend to choose healthier food? It's a good point. Yeah, it's um, a good point. And so, so we didn't really know until we had interventional trials. So, for example, University of Arizona. They did the interventional trial where they thought that the reason that people um, who eat kind of the standard American diet have twice as stress, anxiety, depression scores than people eating plant-based diets, they thought it was the arachidonic acid, this long-chain inflammatory omega-6 fatty acid found in animal products. So what they did is they took people eating standard American diet, randomized them into two groups, and half of them removed, you know, eggs, chicken, and other meat from people's diets, um, which is the most concentrated sources of arachidonic acid, and saw significant improvement in mood within just two weeks. Wow. And uh, and so what we think is this arachidonic acid was causing what's called neuroinflammation, brain inflammation. We may be able to clear that inflammation from our brains in as few as two weeks by cutting down our intake of eggs, chicken, and other meat. So that's really extraordinary. The fact that you know the same changes, like exercise, for example, that can improve physical health, also can improve mental health mm. as well. Wow. So th that's quite compelling. You know, that's a very powerful thing that we can do ourselves on top of the standard uh, sort of advice of getting active, you know, doing some exercise. Actually changing your diet can significantly improve your well-being. That that's great to hear. So, so you've been you've been vegan yourself for 28 years now, um, and you obviously you're well ahead of your time. I thought I was an early adopter five years ago, where there was you know it was very difficult to go into the supermarket and buy kind of regular sort of vegan products like you can today. Uh, the, the, this this interview is being done for Veganuary, so Veganuary is kind of getting people to take up veganism for a month as a trial. So, in yeah. support of people that are doing Veganuary, what advice would you give? The, the final question for you: uh, How to be a healthy vegan if you're just doing this as a bit of an experiment to see, to see how you get on? There's some wonderful resources out there. Probably my favorite is 21 Day Kickstart program. If you go to 21daykickstart.org. Um, it starts at the first of every month, not just January, but it starts at the first of January. We do it all as a group, and you get daily, you know, tips and recipes and support um, over a 21-day period, just to kind of, you know, transition your store towards starting healthy. It's a bunch of different languages. Hundreds of thousands of people have done it. 21daykickstarter.org. That's a great way. And if you want information on evidence-based nutrition in general, they can check out nutritionfacts.org. 
um, uh, which is my website, everything's free, no ads, no uh, uh, corporate sponsorship, strictly non-commercial, not selling anything, just put it up as a public service, as a labor of love, as a tribute to my grandmother. Fantastic. And Thanks your book so is How Not to Die, and the new book is How Not to Die Cookbook. Is that correct? It is indeed. Check it out. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Hopefully speak to you again soon. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I really, really hope you all enjoyed listening to that podcast as much as we enjoyed making it. Dr. Michael Greger is an absolutely fantastic individual. He's doing some really incredible work, really making a difference to get the facts and the truth out there and really help people to navigate some of the, 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 the myths and pseudoscience that, that exists to really help you to make better conscious decisions about your nutrition. All the links and the websites that I mentioned, we will post them on the LCC page. So make sure if you haven't done so already, go to the Life Changing Conversations Facebook page, hashtag Life Changing Conversations, and you'll find all the information you need. And please join the conversation. Like, comment, share any content that you come across that you found interesting, please forward it on to your friends. Um, and, and let us know your stories. Let us know how you're getting on, not, not just with your your journey with a plant-based diet if you're choosing to, to, to adopt that, but just what is your life changing story? What are the moments that you've experienced in your life that have absolutely changed the course of your life? We really, really wanna hear ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Have a wonderful day and look forward to the next podcast.